I want to start out by just reading you guys a story. Uh, it's actually the bigger story of what Jackson just read for you guys. And, and what it shows is the interaction between Jesus and a man. Um, and we're going to learn about what Jesus did and who this man was uh, as we read. I, I don't know what's easier for you guys. If you're a person who it's easier for you to follow along in your Bible, uh, then do that. If you're someone who follows on the screen, do that. But if you are just someone who likes to listen to stories, feel free to just listen to this as well. So this is uh, Luke chapter 8. Uh, starting in verse 26. It's talking about Jesus' life. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, that's Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, for he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep banks into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, that's Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So here we see this really specific story of salvation. We see a demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs, separated from society, cut off from the rest of humanity, and Jesus comes and he saves him. We see the story about one man, lots of issues, and a Jewish carpenter who has a traveling ministry. And I can honestly say in my 10 years of being on staff at a church, I have never ran into someone like this. I've never ran into a situation like this. Zero pigs have died due to my ministry. This is rare. And I've ran into a lot of people. I've ran into suicidal people. I've ran into cunning people, depressed people, adulterous people, addicted people, hateful people, lustful people, unsatisfied people, people who love dogs, people who love cats, people who love red licorice, and the cultural outsiders who like black licorice. I've met hundreds of people but I haven't met this person. And, and as I was thinking about this, it never ceases to amaze me that culture sees all these people, it sees all these problems, and it wants to fix all of these problems with its own specific cure, a cure to that problem, a cure to whatever it is that ails you. If you're overweight and you hate your body image, take this pill. If you wanna go on a date and have relational satisfaction, go to this website. If you feel discontent, eat this comfort food. I'm always amazed how society can both expose a problem that we never knew we had and provide a wonderfully new solution to that problem at the same time. Have you guys noticed that? So no joke, just this week I was listening to a podcast and on it they were talking about uh, this guy's like, hey, we only rep products we really like and I hate shopping for clothes. And so I found this website that my wife loves it too. All I do is I give them my style and my size and they send me clothes each month. And I sat there as a full-grown male. Am I a full-grown male? That's a weird phrase. Anyway, um, I sat there as a sentient being and I heard this. I was like, I hate shopping for clothes. I am burdened by shopping for clothes. What a hierarchical structure which forces me to shop for my own clothes. And I went and I signed up for this website. Like, I... 
a week ago, I thought I was grown up enough to go and pick out my own clothes. And now it's like, nope, that's a problem. I need a solution. And so I pay money for someone. To, I, I'm going to cancel it though. They gave me a screaming deal. They doubled my offer in the first week. So, you know, I get $240 worth of clothes for 60 bucks. So really I gained money. Anyway, uh, we, we, we all get exposed to thousands of problems in our own lives. And to those thousand problems, doesn't it seem like culture, your friend, the school, TV, radio sells you 10,000 solutions to each of your thousand problems? It seems like there's numerous ways and numerous things we could do to fix the smallest thing in us. But what's interesting is when we look at scripture, we can see this really specific story of this man, and we see the solution for this man was similar to the solutions for the other people who are around Jesus. While none of us in here are possessed by a demon, how many of you have been self-righteous? Like a Pharisee. Jesus saved some Pharisees. How many of you have been blinded by greed and by money? Jesus saved a man named Matthew who was consumed with extorting people for his own financial gain. How many of you desire power and authority and recognition? Jesus saved a Roman centurion who lived just like that. You see, it's fascinating that Jesus encounters all of these multi-ethnic, all sort of problem people, but the solution's the same. He applies himself to their ailments. He applies himself to their problems. You see, Jesus ran into thousands of people, crowds of people, literally the gospel of Mark, which we looked at uh, two years ago, said that people would get crushed in the crowds trying to see Jesus. That's how many people were there. He ran into sick people, lame people, self-righteous people, hateful people, lonely people, successful people, lustful people, strong people, political people, repulsive people, and he offered them all the same solution. He offered himself. See, that's something better than the 10,000 solutions culture gives us. And if we really stop to think about our culture, we see that it always is offering us something. It's always offering that next, next fix, that next solution, that next oppressive relief of buying your own clothes. But isn't it interesting that after a while it just becomes white noise, doesn't it? So a recent study shows that most people are exposed to 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements in a day. How many of you bought 10,000 things today? Probably none of you. Why? Because culture offers so much to so many things that eventually we just tune it out, don't we? It speaks so loud and so frequently that we hear nothing. It's almost as if the solutions become silent to us. And see, this is our final distinction as we're going through our series called Gospel Distinctions, looking at how the gospel is different and better than what the world offers. And that's because the world offers nothing but loud silence, right? 10,000 advertisements a day, a few of you maybe bought a Grizz burrito, and that was it. This is the second straight sermon where I've mentioned a Grizz burrito, okay? Um, There's an ongoing problem in my heart. But... While the world offers nothing but silence, the gospel makes you outspoken with the clear cure in a voice that rises above everything else. And that's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see that in a world which promises joy, only the gospel makes us the outspoken voice of hope. In a world with thousands and thousands and thousands of proclaimers of salvation, what is it that makes our hope the clear hope, the true hope, the resonating hope. And so what we're going to look at today is this story in, in, in Luke chapter 8. And we're going to see three pictures of those who desire to be outspoken for Jesus. If you want to be someone who speaks in a way that matters, that's not white noise, that contributes to society, that is beneficial to those around you, that is attractive and winsome and powerful, we need to see what this text is telling us. We need to see what it means to be outspoken in a world of deafening silence. And what we're going to see in this text is three pictures. We're going to see one, we're going to see the joy of the outspoken. Secondly, we're going to see the task of the outspoken. And then we're going to see the life 
of the outspoken. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time of gathering together. Uh, And Lord, I pray for salvation here tonight. I pray that we would see something which pushes us in ways we've never been pushed before, which compels us to speak and to share and to live differently, not through coercion or through pressure or through manipulation, but through joy. Lord, I have not enough words. I don't have enough adjectives of beauty. I don't have enough uh, adjectives of, of, of success or what is attractive. I can't talk long enough to describe the beauty of who you are, but you've sent your Holy Spirit and your Holy Spirit can do more than make us hear. It can make us feel the joy. It can make us to know the truth. And so I ask tonight, Lord, that you're gracious to us in providing that joy to us, that clarity, what the Bible calls us peeling off of the scales of our eyes so we may see with truth the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that we at GCF, that the Christians here on campus, both in this room and outside this room, will be outspoken with clarity and power and purpose for the joy and good of everyone around us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, like I said, first thing we're going to look at, uh, and just a warning, I told Stephen today that you guys, when I get to my second point, you're going to freak out because it's buried deep in the sermon. The first point is way longer than the rest of them, okay? So they're not equidistance, equal length, so just calm down, okay? Um, But the first point we're going to look at is we're going to spend the most of our night. It's called the joy of the outspoken. And this is really important because when you think of Christianity, when you think of Jesus, when you think of religion, Do you think of it in terms of joy? Have you ever considered the things you do on Sunday or on Tuesday night at Bible study, Thursday night, your Bible reading, your your worship music, do you consider it in terms of joy? Because I think if we really look at this story that we read in Luke chapter 8, we can't help but see anything but joy as the primary response to the salvation Jesus brought this man. And it's true that while this story deals with a specific man who is demon-possessed, and none of us in here fall into that category, we can't separate what Jesus did to this man from what Jesus did to our own hearts. And that's because everything Jesus does is a microcosm of salvation. Jesus can't help but mimic his salvation with everything he did. Every word Jesus spoke, every miracle Jesus did, every person Jesus healed was meant to help that person, but it was also meant to help us understand the vastness of God's salvation. It was meant to be a story and an active illustration of what Jesus does for us spiritually every day. And this is the fourth week in our Gospel Distinction series. Next week, we start a book uh, called First Peter, and we're looking at a series called This Next Life, how knowing the hope we have in Jesus changes our life today. But we've looked at three distinctions up until this point. And it's really interesting. We see all three of those distinctions at play in this text. The first distinction we saw in week two uh, was actually that sin is a disease, and the gospel is a healer. Sin is a disease and gospel is healer. And look, so the book of Mark gives the same story, but through Mark's eyes. And look at what it says in Mark chapter five, verse five. It says, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. See, this man was sick. He was unhealthy. He had a problem. He was diseased. And the second distinction we looked at was sin is a power as a controlling power, and the gospel is a liberator. Jesus frees us from the power of sin. He frees us from being enslaved to something else. And look back at what we just read in Luke 8, verse 29. For he, that's Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. But look at what it says about this man. There's an aside. It says, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Mark's gospel says that no man and no chain could contain him. He was under not only the compulsion of sin, but he had this weird power of sin. He was like superhuman strength with something he never even 
wanted. He was so strong that no one can bind him. And what we see in both Mark and in John is that meant nothing could stop this man from being a terror to himself. As we saw, he was cutting himself and he was moaning and he was crying. But it also didn't stop him from being a terror to others. And that's the distinction we saw last week. We've seen sin as, uh, sin as a disease, sin as a power. Last week, we looked at sin as an isolator to humanity and Jesus as a reconciler to humanity. Look at Luke 8, 27, and, and just listen to the isolating language here. When Jesus stepped on the land, there he met him, a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So here's this man who is from the city, but he's not there anymore. He was from the place where people lived, but doesn't live there anymore. He was a man, but he doesn't wear clothes like people. He was a person, but he doesn't live in a home like a person. He lived among the tombs like a dead man. You see, everything that it just said shows how opposite he was to a healthy, functioning human being inside of a normal community. Whatever this man had radically changed his interaction with people around him. He was so sick and so powerful that he was literally alive with death. Do you see that? Under the control, unbound, hating himself, other people hated him. If only he would die, but no one can chain him. No one can stop him. No one can contain him. It's just hard to imagine what this would be like, right? It's even harder to think that the Bible uses the same language to describe us before Jesus came into our life. Ephesians 2 talks about being under the power of the prince of the air. It talks about us being sick and dead and enslaved. And often, not only is it hard for us to understand the physical aspect of that because it's a spiritual disease, but often it's really hard to understand our own problem because we, we see in like first person view, right? We can't see our problem as much. That's my, my, why my beautiful wife who's here tonight always gets mad at me when I don't tell her there's something in her teeth because apparently she can't see her own teeth. It takes somebody else to see it. And oftentimes, only when we look at somebody else's problems do we realize that we have those same problems. And that's why this, this story is in the Bible. That's what the story of this man shows us, is that he needed to be saved. See, my wife uh, was telling me this. She knows a lady who has a 10-year-old son with extreme autism. And, and I want to be careful because I want to talk about here the story of this boy with autism, but I in no way want to insinuate that autism and demon possession are connected. So I just want to, that might be really obvious, but I just want to make sure that I'm not saying that this boy sinned and therefore he has autism. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, God says that, that people who have diseases are given to him for his glory so that God might be made manifest in his salvation, either in this life or in the next. So anyway, however, I read this, I've read this story so many times in scripture. I preached it when we went through the gospel of Mark and it was kind of like, oh, this man, bummer for him. Glad Jesus saved him. But kind of the hopelessness of this situation never really hit me until Sarah started telling me the story about this boy. So this boy is, is 10 years old and he's so mentally sick that he's, he's basically incapable of acting like a human. He literally acts like this beast. And at 10 years old, he lives his life so physically frustrated that he's just like this ball of muscle. His whole body is clenched the whole time and he's so strong and he's so destructive that his parents literally have to lock him into his room at night. They have extra locks on the door to make sure he can't get out but if he, because if he gets out unsupervised, he destroys everything and not happy my toddler knocked over a bull destruction, angry, violent, loud, screaming destruction. He wrecks entire rooms. And he's so strong that his mom is basically unable to stop him if he ever gets out. She told me once of one day her just having to lock her son in her room because she couldn't do anything about it physically. And she sat on the other side of the door hearing her son scream and moan as he destroyed his own bedroom. Just enslaved to the sickness that was in his bones. And it's gotten to the point where it's becoming dangerous and, and unhealthy for the mom to be home alone with this boy. And so what social workers are recommending is that 
the boy needs to get help somewhere else. And here's this issue. He's a terror. He's difficult. He's unstable. And he's sick. But he's her son. That's her boy. As much hardship as it is to deal with that and to see that and to care for that, it's a decision that grieves her to make the decision to send that child away. Can you imagine if tonight when she got home, her boy was cured? Can you imagine the tears of relief that would flood, the, the physical relaxation she would have? She could breathe. She could sleep at night without having to wake up and fear the noise coming from her son's room as her son getting out to wreak havoc. She would have a new sense of elation, a new sense of renewal of energy, of purpose, of affection, of joy. She would have a peace like she's never had before. And you see, deep in our hearts and deep in the heart of everyone we will ever meet is that same desire to be relieved of something. But it's veiled because we often don't realize that that need is our need. We don't realize that that state is our heart before God. Enslaved, debilitated, treacherous, violent, and hostile. And we see this need, this veiled need that everyone has, when we see how obsessed our culture is with worship. That sounds weird to say. And you've often heard, if you've been around GCF a long time, we always talk about how we're all worshipers. We are by nature worshipers. We worship whether you worship God, whether you worship entertainment, whether you worship the trees. We worship everything. And I always see that as like something of compulsion, right? We were just born and so we worship. We look for something better than us. But what I realized, actually just two nights ago, I wrote it down on my phone knowing what I was going to talk about today. And what I realized is that we're not simply worshipers by nature, but we're willful worshipers. We want to worship, don't we? Think about it. We all want to encounter something. We all want to reach something. We all want to attain something. We all want to become something, which brings us a sense of awe, the sense of amazement, the sense of joy, the sense of belonging. I was listening to this spoken word. My dad, like, I, I'm living with my parents right now because I have no home because they're remodeling it. And my dad was watching weird dad videos on YouTube. And it was this spoken word thing um, that someone had sent him. And it was about education. And it was so nonsensical. Uh, and, and yet he's, he's listening to this. And there's music behind it. And so here you have this rising music behind this speaker who's speaking with kind of rhythmic passion. And I'm hearing this nonsense, but man, I want to hear him. <laughs> I, 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 want, I want to be one of those people who stands up and claps. He could be saying, the stu- he could be saying crocodile, alligator, Chevrolet, home theater. Um, and, and, and I would hear that if with this music and with his cadence, and I, I want that. Why is that? Why is it that if I'm sitting here talking right now, you could be bored, but if we start playing like Beethoven's fifth behind me, you're like, this is the word of God. (laughs) It's because our hearts want to worship. That's why we go to movies. That's why you either love horror or you love romance or you love comedy. You love a specific genre because there's something in that that elevates you, that brings you up that attaches itself to you in a way that's unique, that makes you a part of something bigger. It's something which elevates you from your former state and connects you to a new sense of something. It provides just a glimpse of something that your heart so desperately wants. And so you're willing to, in normal, everyday ways, go and find things that stimulate that worship. The new experience, the new boyfriend, the new girlfriend, the new album, the new mountaintop. But I'm here to tell you that all of those desires were created to find their end in the person of Jesus Christ and his salvation. There are 10,000 ways you can be led to worship, to find something, but there's only one way which satisfies your longings, your hopes, and your desires in something that's real. And here in Luke 8, 
we see a man who displayed physically all the symptoms we have spiritually, and Jesus delivered him. Jesus saved him. And what I love is how this concludes. Luke 8, 35. So Jesus heals this, he, he casts the demons out of the, the, the man, they go into the pigs, they rush down the cliff, and, and then the, the townspeople hear what's happened and look at what continues in our story in verse 35. Then the people went out to see what had happened. Pigs are dying, groaning men are coming back to life. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I love that line, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed. Remember, he never had clothes. <laughs> and in his right mind. I, I don't know if there are amusement park junkies in here, but I love amusement parks. Does anyone here like live for amusement parks? Yeah, so a, a few of you. I love it. But isn't the worst moment, the worst moment isn't standing outside the gate. The worst moment is when you give them your ticket, they let you in, and you're a quarter mile from your favorite roller coaster, because I always had the good ones in the back. And you have to walk all that way, just hoping that by the time you get there, you're not buried 10,000 people deep in line, <laughs> right? That's like the worst walk. That's, that's, the, that's the walk that never ends, is the walk from inside the gate to your roller coaster, to the main event. And I get that skiing too. There are skiers. The worst eternity you spend on the ski hill is the chairlift on your first run. You didn't pay for the chairlift. And it seems like, they're, like they have these high-speed lifts, and it seems like when you get on, there's like some old man at the top, like, here they're coming, like cranking the chairlift so slow because all you want to do is be on top of the mountain. All you want to do is to be going down and having that fun and experiencing that joy. Being on the chairlift wasn't enough. And what I love about this story is that the man finds himself healed, freed, surrounded by community at the feet of the one who saved him. Do you realize that? Jesus saved this man. We don't know how, we don't know where, but as this man woke up, he was at the feet of Jesus. You see, God's salvation doesn't buy us access to the park and we figure it out from there. The freedom of the gospel doesn't heal us and sit us on a chairlift. The reconciliation of Jesus doesn't, doesn't change us and leave us in the graveyard. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it finds the longing, broken worshiper and puts them at the feet of Jesus, their savior and their joy. It unites the one who's been redeemed to the joy of being redeemed. You see, the gospel doesn't set you inside the gate. The gospel puts you at the feet of the main event. There's no waiting. There's no tension. When we realize the salvation that Jesus gives us, we are given access to, at the feet of, the most, the, the, the most beautiful event, the most joyful situation, the most powerful redeemer, the most passionate lover, the kindest father, and we find ourselves for the first time fully clothed and in our right minds in the best place. I love the parable Jesus himself gives in Matthew 13, 44. It says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. I love this story. He goes and finds something and he's so nervous that that thing is going to be gone that he buries it. It is so attractive. It is so lovely. It is so valuable. It is so precious that he's like, this is mine. No one can have it. And immediately without thinking, without running it by his wife, he's like, we're selling the house. We're selling the dog. We're selling the car. And we're buying a field. Why? Because he found something better. No one had to explain to him a cost value analysis. No one had to walk him through that gold is better than silver. No one had to explain to him the worth of what he experienced because he knew it, because he saw it. The first thing we should know about our salvation, the thing which should carry us on in our salvation, is the joy that comes from being saved by Jesus himself. And you see what the man wanted to do after this. Look at Luke 8, 
37 through 39. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart. So they're asking Jesus here. So it's confusing because there's a lot of hymns in here. They asked Jesus to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into a boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone had gone, begged that he might be with Jesus, but Jesus sent the man away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see the joy, so, so, so here, here's the question for you. How do you diagnose your joy? How can you assess do I really have a joy in salvation? Do I see rightly what Jesus saved me from? Do I understand that that debilitating power the man was under was who I was before Jesus came into my life? Well, here's the litmus test put forward in this, test, in this text. Do you want to follow Jesus like that man wanted to? Man, this man was in his city. He was healed. He had clothes. He could get a house. He could wander around in the desert on his own will, not by the will of anybody else. But he says, Jesus, take me with you. Jesus, don't leave me. Jesus, I want more of this. I want more of this peace. I want more of this joy. I want more of this salvation. I want more of this life. I don't know anything, but I know I want you. Because I know where you are, salvation is. And I know that there is no end to what you've already began to show me in my new life. That's noble, isn't it? Man, if this group was typified by one thing and that thing was a longing to be with Jesus, I can only imagine the difference we would make on campus. But you see what Jesus said to him? He says, no. He says, you can't come with me. He commands him to go back. But more than a command, he commissions him to go back. Do you see what Jesus said? The first part of verse 39. He says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. You see, the first thing is to know the joy of the outspoken. The second thing is to see the task of the outspoken. So the task Jesus gave him is to go back and tell everything that God has done for him. Why? Why does Jesus tell this man, instead of being like, come on in the boat, let's go. Why does he tell this man to go back to his home and declare how much God has done for him? We see the answer. I love the answer. It's really subtle. Look at verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. So here we have verses 26 through 39 talking about this man. You know what the man's name is? The man with the demons, the man from whom the demons had gone. We don't know anything about this man, but we know he was saved by Jesus. The identifying facet in his life wasn't that the banker now was healed. It wasn't that Dave no longer has a legion. It wasn't that Kyle came back from the mountains. It was that the demons had gone at the hand of Jesus. This man's identity was wrapped up in the salvation that Jesus brought him. I heard this week um, someone say, I always try to remember people's name because that's what they value most because that's what makes them them. I thought that was really good. Too bad I suck at remembering names. But is that true? That's not Brian. That's Caleb. It's his name. It means something. It's who he is. And here, who this man is, is the man who has been saved by Jesus. Salvation defines him. You see, we have a message of salvation when we've been saved. We have a call to evangelize and share the gospel with others when we've been saved. But we only have that burden and that opportunity because it has now been connected to the identity we share as a human. You are nothing but the one whom Jesus has saved. As Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. You see, if we want to see the task of sharing the gospel rightly, we need to see the joy of having our identity be put in Jesus. 
I've probably shared this scene with you guys a thousand times if you've heard me preach before. One of my favorite scenes in all of film is when, in Schindler's List, when the Jews are supposed to be moved and they're going to be released, and instead they get on a train and they end up at a concentration camp. And the guards start unloading them, and the, and, but this Schindler, the, the, the hero, has bought their freedom. And here they are in this concentration camp, and the first thing they say to the Nazi officers is, no, 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 we're Schindler's Jews. We're Schindler's Jews. They didn't lead with, this is my name, this is who I am, I shouldn't be here. The immediate gut reaction was to appeal to the identity of salvation, which marks them as distinct. And they didn't have to be coerced into saying that, but they said that because that was their joy, that was their livelihood, that was their peace, that was their chance at life. See, Jesus doesn't call us to peddle lousy products. Jesus doesn't call us to go on campus asking people if they've registered to vote, though no one cares about it. Jesus doesn't, is interested in things of minimal impact or subjective importance. Jesus has called us to speak clearly the message of salvation, which is the message of how much God has done for you. If you don't see what God has done for you, this task is unbearable because you have nothing to give away. But if you see what Jesus did for you, this task becomes a natural overflow of what Christ has done. God has done much for us. You see, I grew up in a Christian home. I believed in Jesus at a young age. I went to church. I went to a Christian school. I memorized a bunch of scripture. I did the whole nine yards, but I always thought that somehow, like, I had to manage to find a good time despite being a Christian. Like I always thought my tombstone to read, Tyler Valine managed to enjoy life despite being a Christian. It's like being a Christian was good. I knew I shouldn't do those things. They were bad. They sent me to hell. I, I understood that. I knew what sin was. But it was always like, because I can't do these things, I need to just crush everybody in Awana or something like that to get like what, like the joy I had was the margins of my life. Like most joy in a Venn diagram, there's like things that are fun, things we can do, right? And, and that's how I viewed my life. But I remember, and it was, it was good. I didn't, I didn't lapse into seasons of sin. I didn't ever doubt Jesus. But I just lived that way. It's just part of what I did. But I remember my junior year, something began to change. I, was, I went to a Christian high school and um, my teacher I took this, this class, it was kind of an elective class I got to take as an upperclassman. It's called Community Outreach. And my teacher started, had us start reading Christian books about evangelism, about serving God, about discipleship. I began to do things that I once thought were like burdensome, like caring about people, breaking somebody's leaves, finding joy in reading the Bible, things like that, doing devotions, having our, our devotions monitored, reading more Christian books. And I, I, I can't tell you what changed? But something did. Something my junior year of high school began plugged the hinge in, which the rest of my life to this date has swung around. Because here my whole life, I had turned to Jesus for salvation, but I had never turned to him for joy. I turned to him because I didn't want to go to hell, but I didn't turn to him because I really wanted to live. But when I started living my whole life for Jesus, it didn't start as my whole life. I didn't show up one day, like end of junior year, and be like, nailed it. It started with baby steps of seeing in the smallest areas that Jesus has called us to something better. So I went to, high, or I went to college. I came here. I went to the, the journalism school. My whole life, I've loved sports. And all I wanted to do was to be the next Scott Van Pelt. I wanted to be the next sports center anchor. I wanted to spend the whole of my life talking about sports because that's where I, what made me happy. That's still what makes me happy. I love sports. My wife wishes that football season didn't exist so that I could be a parent and a husband, but it does, and so I pay my dues. And so there's this, this I come here, and I want to find that joy. You're all here. You're all seeking a major. You're all finding a degree because you want that joy. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you drop out of college. And you can't find your joy. We have to find a place where that interacts. But I went to the journalism program. I was good at it. I'm going to brag. I was good at it. I hosted a sports talk show. I made documentaries. I won the Dean's Award for outstanding uh, journalism in my class. We had internship opportunities at local radio stations. I had, I had connections with sportscasters in Seattle. But something weird happened. 
my senior year, I graduated. I didn't go into radio. I didn't go into TV. I'm not on Sports Center. I'm standing right here. I went into full-time ministry. And what changed was not this obligation to serve Jesus, but what changed was where I found my greatest joy. Because I realized, for me, I had far more joy in talking about Jesus than I ever had debating strength of schedule on sports talk radio. Real joy, not different joy, not lesser joy, not Christian joy, the same joy, but better. I'm not here to say all of you need to go into ministry full-time. You're all called to ministry. I'm not saying you all need to go into ministry full-time and be on staff at a church, but I am here to say that God has done much for me. And I want to share that with you. I've lived a boring, middle-of-the-road, white man life. (laughs) But I know firsthand, with however few years of experience I have, There is nothing better than following Jesus. That's all I have. That's all I can give away. That's the compelling motivation for how I love my wife. That's a compelling motivation for how I parent my kids. That's why I'm standing here today. I'm awkward around people. Those of you who know me know that. But the reason why I do this is because I want you to know that there is something better. There is something greater. There is something different than what culture offers you. Something better than what nominal Christianity seems to please you with. Something more therapeutic than thinking because I go to church, I'm a Christian. There's the man, Jesus Christ, beckoning you to trust in him, to believe in him, to savor him, to love him, and to find your joy in him. You see, Jesus, if he has called you to himself, has called you more than a standard of action or creed of belief. He's called you to a life of joy and the task of sharing that joy with others. You see, the life outspoken, the life we ought to be is a life tied to who we already are. I love this story because the man was already different. No one, none of these people who came out to the countryside said, hey, who's this? They knew it. The man who once had the demons, the naked, yelling, chained man in the wilderness is sane and clothed. He was different. People knew him differently. It was in his nature. The Bible calls us salt. It calls us light. Light is light. It is not darkness. It doesn't try. It is. Salt is salty. It is not sweet. You can't, it doesn't wake up and be like, I'm sweet or salty today. By nature, it's salty. The Bible is using this language of nature to you. It is saying by nature, because of that salvation, you're different. You're unique. You have something special in what's happened to you. Just by living, you're different than everybody else who's out there. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't say, go keep doing what you're doing. Go keep being the man who was demon-possessed who now wears clothes. He says, be different and go and declare with your words how much God has done for you. See, that's often where we stop, isn't it? We wanna be different because we wanna feel the goodness of that salvation. We wanna be different because we realize we need to be different. That's what we've looked at for the last three weeks. We have a problem. We wanna be different because we want hope. We wanna be different because we wanna have joy. We wanna be different because we wanna be satisfied. But that difference is called with a follow-up of declaring the good news to those around you. Where are you doing this in your life? When you see what Jesus calls us to, it's always called to a commission to make disciples, to share the good news, to go and tell others of how much God has done for you. Where have you done that in the last week, last month, in the last year? Because this is the task of the outspoken. But lastly, and very briefly, I want to look at the life of the outspoken. You see, in this passage, we see people who didn't like what happened. The herdsmen are mad because their whole livelihood just ran off a cliff and drowned. The other people are terrified. 
There's this tension between what had happened and what Jesus had done to this man. We see fear, we see uncertainty, and we see hardship, but we also see something unique. We see the man go and do what Jesus said. Why? If anyone had reason to be scared to go tell people, it was the man who just killed everybody's pigs. It was the man who terrorized a community. But he went and did it. And he proclaimed it. Why? Because he knew what the prophet Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 12. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Why was it reasonable for this man to do that? If I told you right now to go walk out these walls and go to your roommate and talk to him about Jesus, how many excuses do we come up with? One, two, three, a billion, right? It's terrifying. But what makes that realistic? Seeing how much Jesus has done for you. What makes that bitter pill hard or easier to swallow is the sweet water we pull from the well of God's salvation. That's what compels us to do it. You see, here's the thing. We all have different personalities. We have introverts. We have extroverts. We have people who are comfortable in large groups. People who are more comfortable in small groups. We have people who are meek and soft-spoken. We have people who are not meek or soft-spoken. But regardless of your preference, you are called by the God who saved you to with life and word share the joy God has put in your life. But you're not called to do it alone. And that's what GCF is here to do. Here's two things, just in closing, GCF wants to help you do as you live a life as someone outspoken. The first is we want to help you see with greater clarity the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will not disciple, you will not evangelize, you will not contribute to this society in any sort of meaningful way unless you're first saved. And we want you to see the beauty of that. We want, with, with staff or with student leaders, we want to sit down, we want to read the Bible with you. We want to disciple you. We want to invite you to church. We want you to know the gospel. We don't want you to just go talk to people because that's what we want you to do. We want you to be saved. We want to see you in eternity. We want to see your chains be unbound. We want to see your sickness be healed. We want to see your enslavement be left shattered on the floor because of the salvation Jesus has brought you. We want you above anything else in these four years to not know science, to not know math, to not know social studies or forestry. We want you to know that Jesus died for you and he has a plan for you and that's what's best for you. But secondly, everything we do here at GCF, this large group, our Bible studies on Tuesdays, om nom one o'clocks, everything we do we do because we want you to be able to invite your friends to it. Because there are people who are better at sharing the gospel than me, and I'm better than sharing the gospel with other people. There are other people who are better at caring than me. There are other people who are better at communicating than me. And that's why God gave us the church. He hasn't called you to do this alone. And so when you invite people to large group, when you invite people to, to, to eat lunch with us, you're not just inviting them because you want more people there. You're inviting them because you want to expose them to other people who can help them know, see, and love Jesus even more. It's a group effort, and we want to be part of that. I, I have a friend, who, a, a dear friend, who is a brother in Christ because we went, I, 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 like a coward, went to school with him for four years here, and not until my senior year did I ever talk to him about Jesus. But how the opportunity came is we went on a trip, we went on a Christian conference, and remarkably, he wanted to go with me. I didn't even invite him. Someone else invited him. And I remember a couple weeks after the conference, I said, what'd you think of that? That was all I did. I asked a question. How many of you can sit next to your friend at lunch and say, what did you think about that? Okay, I can. I'll do it. Okay, the rest of you think about it, pray about it. Um, but, but it got him to think. I asked him to process something. And that opened up a door of, of him saying, I never really saw myself that way. And me saying, I'm going to tell him about Jesus now. <laughs> but that's what we want to do. We want to be a place where the gospel is clearly proclaimed so that you can invite people here and know that they're going to hear about Jesus. And you could ask questions like, what do you think about Jesus? Have you ever thought about yourself that way? 
We want to help you share the gospel by creating a culture where they can come that's accepting, loving, but also Jesus preaching. And I want to make an appeal to you guys. The appeal is invite everyone you know to GCF retreat, not because Stephen's going to rap battle, but because we go through great lengths to make sure, and I'm more excited this year about any other year because this is our third year we've done the retreat and we've had trial and error, more error the last two years. The whole retreat is designed to pummel people with the amazing joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We assume no church background. We assume no church language. We assume no familiarity with the gospel. It is a place where we want your friends to come and hear with you right next to them, the person who loves them and knows them, and respond to the gospel. We want you to be the clear voice of what really saves and what really helps. And that's what the retreat is all about. And so I want you to come and I want you to bring people. And if there's any question about funds, just tell them to sign up. Just tell them to sign up. We want them there. We want them to hear the good news. We want, I don't want to, I've said this a few times here. I don't want to be a ministry that gets youth group kids. I want youth group kids to come, but I want a ministry that grows not because high school seniors graduate youth group and come here. I want to be a ministry that grows because people are brought from death to life by the saving power of Jesus Christ. And I'm not in your classes and I'm not in your dorms, but you are. So we want to help you do that. We have something the world can never offer. So let's talk about it. Rather than being like culture and saying 10,000 things loudly, let's say one thing and let's say it clearly. Let's share it. Let's live it. Let's be filled by the joy of it. Sell all you have and buy stock in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your salvation. Lord, I pray tonight that you make us feel that joy. For those in here who have known you forever, Lord, strip off the scab and callous of the ordinariness we often fall into in life and reveal to us the raw emotion of knowing what it means to be saved by the one who saved us, what it means to be saved to the feet of Jesus, what it means to be no longer enslaved and sick and in bondage, but to be reconciled to God and to one another to truly make a difference. Lord, I pray for those in here who are not believers, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would convert them to life so that they might know and that they might be a catalyst in this group because they have seen the joy of the Lord and salvation. Lord, I pray that not in two weeks we'll have a bigger group. I pray that in 30 years, GCF will be a larger group because of the efforts of evangelism this group does to create a legacy of salvation on a campus that desperately needs it. Amen.